This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Spanish Football Podcast. I'm Phil Kitchramalides, and I'm joined, as ever, by Dr. Sid Lowe. Sydney, hello. Hello, Philip. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, my friend. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Yeah? Genuinely? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, I mean, you know what Mondays are like, but, but you know, not, not, not that awful. Okay, because, <laughs> you know, if it was awful, you could tell me. And you can tell the <laughs> listeners. They've been with us for many years now. You know, we can open up to each other. It's no, fine. no, not too bad. No, 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 Are you no. looking forward to Getafe against Elche this evening? I am, although, disappointingly, I discovered, and only this morning, I must admit, I should have realised yesterday, because, of course, that's when they announced their squad, that Javier Pastore has not boarded the plane, so I will not be seeing his debut against, uh, against Getafe. Oh, he's not boarded the plane? Oh, OK, no. because I saw, the, I saw the manager had had said that he's in much better shape than he thought he was going to be in, that he had a chance to play, but obviously not if he doesn't get on the plane. So there we go. I mean, unless uh, he's he w- walking there. I mean, it's a long way. <laughs> it's a long walk. <laughs> he could um, hitch a lift, or but no, no, no. Pastore won't be playing uh, this evening. Uh, that's one of two matches which is taking place tonight, uh, the final two games from match day four. This is what else has happened over the weekend, we had two games which were postponed, Villarreal against Alaves and Sevilla against Barcelona. Absolutely no idea when they're going to be fitted into the schedule somewhere, but there we go. On Saturday, therefore, we only had two matches, uh, Levante and Rayo drawing 1-1, Rayo scoring a 93rd minute equaliser, very, very deserved uh, as well. And I'm not just saying that they had 22 shots uh, in the game, they deserved at least one goal, which they finally got in injury time. Athletic Bilbao, Athletic Club de Bilbao, uh, beating Mallorca by two goals to nil, one of the goals scored by Iñaki Williams on his 300th appearance for Athletic Club and his 199th consecutive appearance. It was amazing, isn't it? April 2016 was the last time he didn't play a game at some stage of the match for Athletic Club. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Then on Sunday, we really did have a super Sunday. It all kicked off at the RCDE Stadium where Atletico Madrid beat Espanyol by two goals to one. They came from behind and the winner was scored in the 99th minute by Thomas Lamar. It was the final minute of 10 which were added on at the end of the 90. More on that in just a moment. Then after that, Valencia continued their sensational start to the season by beating Osasuna 4-1 at El Sadar. Gonzalo Guedes playing particularly well and scoring at least one goal. We could possibly give him the second as well, although it did take quite a big uh, deflection. But he's playing really well. Actually, Osasuna didn't play badly in that game, but but Valencia were were really good as well. Uh, La Real defeated Cadiz by two goals to nil at the Estadio Nuevo uh, Mirandilla. And then Real Madrid back to the Bernabeu 560 days later. And... The fans were treated to absolute delight of a game with Real Madrid beating Celta by five goals to two. As we said, Monday night you've got Getafe against Elche and Granada against Sevilla. Sydney, you were there at the Bernabeu, as we said, 560 days later to see the game. Before we get to the 
the actual game, and there's loads to talk about from the match itself. What was it like being back at the Bernabeu? How is it looking? What state is it in? Well, I mean, there's a risk of me downplaying the significance of this because of something I've said before, which is that actually the stadium is not changing much on the inside. So right. going into it, you know, this wasn't stepping into a new stadium. This no. was stepping into the old one, um, at least in terms of looking at the pitch. Uh, on the inside, I must say, apart from a little bit of dustiness, uh, it was actually in remarkably good shape. They'd done a very good job at making it usable. It didn't feel like a building site. Now, from the outside, it looked a bit like one. But, you know, that was only really because the, the kind of the exterior facades had been taken away, ready to put the new casing on. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were cranes and stuff everywhere. But it, it, it didn't look like a mess. You know, it didn't feel precarious in any way. It felt That's completely good. it felt completely fine from that point of view. It was in terms of the atmosphere. I think there was a slight difficulty, which is, of course, that, that in theory, because of coronavirus protocols, they could have had up to, I think, just under 40,000 fans there. I think it was I think they were allowed. No, in fact, it was 60 percent, wasn't it? So they would have been about 45,000 fans. It's, yeah, 48,000. Yeah. But Real Madrid didn't reach that figure for two fundamental reasons. One, of course, is the amount of work that's going on. So there was a tarpaulin covering most of the bottom ring, so half of the Fondo Norte all the way across the side stand there, the whole of the, the, the Fondo Sur, sorry, the south end, and, and in most of the, the west side as well, apart from the bit, of course, where Vinicius would then run and jump into the fans who were pitch side at that, that point. Um, so that kind of took a lot of uh, potential seats out. Madrid were much, much stricter, I think, than any other stadium I've seen in terms of trying to maintain the metre and a half distancing. Um, to the extent that whereas what most grounds have done has said that if you go with people who are from your household, you sit with them. But Madrid have tried to make it so it was a metre and a half for everybody. So that mm. meant that rather than every other seat being occupied, I think it was every third seat occupied. So it was spread out. So what happened was you got 19,800 and something, 74 I think it was, 19,874 fans, which makes quite a lot of noise under normal circumstances very, very widely spread out in a stadium that big doesn't make quite so much noise. Now, um, there were periods in the first half where we thought, actually, no, this is really quite good. The noise was quite good. The fans were kind of getting involved. But then there would be lulls, and those lulls felt mm. very quiet. Because um, I was watching on TV, or I was watching on a TV screen in, in the La Liga TV studios, and, and you were there, and Al, and Al was there as well. And, and I, was, mm. I messaged you guys, going, guys, why is it so quiet? Because in one of those lulls, it sounded like there was nobody there. It literally sounded they were back yeah. at the front of the Stefano during the pandemic. And you were saying, no, 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 it's actually quite loud here when, when they're singing. So, yeah. But yeah, TV, and it, but it, it, was, sounded... it was kind of up and down. And there were periods during the game even where you could hear some of the shouts from the players and from the managers. I was mm. saying it, was, it, it didn't help that it had to be quite so spread out, I think. Okay. Um, what the, the loudest noise, and, and just, you know, I suppose this is, a, this is almost a ringconcultural. The, the loudest noise was at half-time when Real Madrid are losing 2-1. There were whistles. And I must <laughs> confess, I'll be honest with you, I did think, oh, come on. You've waited 560 days for them to come back and you're going to whistle them. But that, of course, is just kind of what fans in Spain do. You know, mm. at half-time, it's not good, so we have a whistle. Mm. Then, of course, it got loud again in the second half because, funnily enough, Madrid were playing pretty well. And, and when they won 5-2 by the end, and obviously we'll come to the game properly in a minute, um, when they won 5-2 in the end, it didn't actually feel like a surprise. So while it was something for everyone to enjoy, it didn't, it didn't have that kind of dramatic element to it in terms of the atmosphere. 
Uh, you mentioned Rincón Cultural, Cultural Corner, which is a part of the programme where we sometimes like to discuss the idiosyncrasies of living in Spain, one of which that regular listeners will know, and we've been talking about for many, many years, is now is about half-time sandwiches. El bocata se come en el descanso. Everybody knows that. But you're no longer allowed no. to bring in sandwiches, right? No, exactly. I, mean, I think I, I told you this about um, even even at second division, well, I was going to call it second division B, what's now Primera Federación, third tier in Spain. Even at that level, you're not allowed to. I think I told you that when we went to Atletico San Luqueño a couple of weeks ago, yes. we weren't allowed to take our sandwiches in. Um, yeah, you're not allowed to eat in the ground. You're allowed water and nothing else because, of course, you've got to keep your mask on. It's to stop okay. people being there. And, 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 and well, everything. that's fine. Yes. Yeah, it did make me think of all the games when I should have taken a bag of sweets and kind of surreptitiously nibbled on a few. It yes. was last night and I didn't because, of course, there were no sweetie stalls outside because they know that you can't no. go in with these things. Um, and, and actually, to be honest, uh, hanging on for three hours is quite hard. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad you survived, Sid, and survived to tell the tale and be with us uh, today. Uh, to the game then, and yeah, there's loads for us to break down here from the respective performances of the two sides. Let's, I guess let's talk about Vinicius, who yeah. scored four goals this season. It's match day four, it's already his best ever scoring season for Real Madrid. Uh, he took his goal last night absolutely brilliantly, displaying the kind of maturity and calmness in front of goal, which have not been characteristic of his play uh, hitherto. That's exactly right. I mean, to be honest, look, this is what I've been writing about today. And, and I think ah. this is, this is the, the most interesting thing. It's not just the numbers of the goals, which obviously in themselves are, are interesting. So, for example, Vinicius scored the last time that Real Madrid played at the Bernabeu, which was against mm. Barcelona. Uh, and he scored well, and that did he? felt like... <laughs> well, okay, okay. I'm glad you said that. Right. Well, yes. I, I was I was moving on to that, but yes, exactly okay. right. Um, so it, that felt like a redemptive goal because it was such a big goal and it was Barcelona. But that goal was a ball. I think he's shooting, but he may even be crossing. But in any case, yes. it's a ball that takes a very big deflection and goes in. Mm-hmm. And so much so that Gerard Piquet, and this was at a time in which you sort of imagine that Vinicius would miss when he had chances. When he gets a chance, he's not going to score. And Piquet even, even admitted that day that he had backed off Vinicius to mm. give Vinicius the, a decision to make, basically. Yeah. Almost safe in the knowledge. Now, obviously, Piquet ends up looking a bit silly, not just because he sort of scores the own goal or deflects in Vinicius's shot, but because he took the decision to do that. He looks a bit silly after the event, but obviously it was based on, a, on, on an analysis, whether right or wrong, that, OK, the thing to do is to introduce doubt into his mind by making him think, by making him make this decision. And that goal, which was seen as redemptive, but was also a deflection, which also kind of fed into this thing that Vinicius had become a bit of a meme, hadn't he? That you laugh mm. at him and he scores a goal by deflection. And you kind of go, well, that's how he scores all of his goals. When he mm. scores, it tends to be a bit of a fluke because he's not calm in front of goal. And to give you an example, that felt redemptive, but in the remaining 11 games that he played that season, he only scored once. In the following season, he only scored three times. He had Mm. 33 games in which he didn't score a goal. As you say, this season, from getting three in, I think it's 25, and then three in a total of 35, he's now got four in four. And it's not just the numbers, but the numbers obviously in themselves matter. And the reason why I say it's not just the numbers and the reason why I'm cautious not to, not to kind of say, Vinicius is, is a goal scorer now, is that he actually scored in two of his first three games last season hmm. and then went almost the rest of the season without scoring, went the rest of the season scoring just once. Although I don't think we should forget the two goals he scored against Liverpool in the Champions League. That's league goals. 
Then what happens? So the reason I'm not, I don't want to get too overwhelmed by the number of goals, even though it's already, as you say, his best ever season. It's the way he's taken the four goals he's taken this season. All of them have been calm. All of them have been, take your time, don't panic, don't lose your head. And by the way, all of them have been the complete opposite of what Carlo Ancelotti told him what to do. Ancelotti, a couple of weeks ago, admitted that he'd said to Vinicius, listen, it's very rare that you see a striker score a goal when he's taken four, five or six touches before shooting. In other words, get your shots off early. Vinicius is doing the opposite. He's carrying the ball pretty much to the goalkeeper and then slotting it past him really, really, really calmly. A few weeks ago, I think it was probably after the Levante game, but it may have been the Alaves game. Vinicius was asked about the goals and he talked about the work that he'd been doing. Now, obviously, on one level, so what? Every player talks about work. Every player says, you know, I've been on the training ground. I've been working away at this. What I think was striking at the time, and I think we may have mentioned this on the podcast, was that Vinicius talked about the psychological work, not just the technical, tactical and, and physical work, the psychological work. And this does feel like a mental process in part, you know, and, and it feels like this is about him finding that tranquility within himself finding that calmness, finding maybe a sense of place and of importance and continuity and and support from teammates. Remember, it's only, uh, what is it? It's slightly less than a year since Karim Benzema was caught on camera telling Mendy not to give him the ball because he said you can't trust him. Because he's playing against us, is what he said. Yeah, yeah. And and so, so I think this really does matter. Now, it may be a flash in the pan. It may not last, but I think it does matter. And the other thing I suppose to say, which is a really simple thing, and, you know, regular listeners will know, I have been a big defender of Vinicius on this podcast for, for years. Well, not for years, because he hasn't been here for years, but, you know, for the last 18 months or so. Well, because I kept yeah. saying, yeah, I like him because he makes things happen. But yeah. as we've always said, in kind of to counter that line of mine, but it tends not to be goals he makes happen. Mm. You know, he opens up the game, he's very exciting, but then that final touch is missing. That's what's there now, and I think is really interesting. And so the point I was going to make was, when he scored that goal against Barcelona which felt like it should have opened the floodgates and didn't, felt redemptive but turned out not to be, he was 19. Hmm. He's only yeah. 21 even now. He, you know, he's still very young and maybe this is something that can happen with time. I don't know if you read it today. and I, I, I bring it up as much as anything else because it just made me giggle a little bit uh, because I'm very childish, as you all know. Uh, Orfeo Suarez in, in El Mundo today described this time away from the Bernabeu as being the time in which Vinicius went through puberty. So, you know, okay. you know how it is, you, you suddenly need to shave, you get spots, your balls drop, and you stop being able to shoot a ball straight. But now that he's been <laughs> through it, he can do it again. I see. Okay, well, that's an interesting way of, of viewing it. Um, however you want to view it, it is a very, very positive start to the season uh, from Vinicius, and his finishing has improved. Um, that's no question about that. Absolutely. Uh, someone who's also pretty good at finishing and scoring goals is Karim Benzema, who got a hat-trick against Celta, his first hat-trick since April 2019. Uh, he's up to 27 goals in the calendar year for, for club and country. And producer Al's put here in the, in the production notes, he's so consistently excellent, it almost passes without comment now. Yes. Which sounds familiar, because that was what we kind of used to say about the Argentine guy who's, who's no longer here. But he's no longer here and Benzema is here. And, and he is consistently excellent, Karim Benzema. He has, I think, a, a, a technical and tactical quality that really is superior 
Hmm. To to just about everybody else, yeah. Um, except as you say, that other guy, and maybe that's part of what leads you into, as you say, this messy paradigm of of, of it going without comment because it becomes so regular and and just kind of a fact. It's not hmm. a big explosion of something. It's just a kind of an ongoing fact. Um, and I think his movement is brilliant. I think his understanding the game is brilliant. I think the the quality of his touch is 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 fantastic. Um, he's just a brilliant, brilliant footballer. And I will be honest, we wouldn't always have said this because there were periods in his career when we had doubts about him, that the techni- the talent was always there, but, but it was at mm. the service of other players. Uh, I think there is a beginning of a, of, a, of a kind of a breakthrough. I think there's a psychological element to it as well. Uh, but I thought he was absolutely sensational yesterday. And his, but sensational, and I think it's also partly that he's low key in that, he doesn't burn anyone up for pace. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't do a fancy flick very often. He just sometimes. does every sometimes, but not that often, does he? He just does everything right. Hmm. Um, and I think he's a he's a wonderful footballer. Uh, you said post match that you reckon Real Madrid will win the league. You often say stuff like that, yeah. but you're sticking with that. Yeah, I mean, let me let me explain why. And, okay, and briefly it, because it, we've got a lot of other stuff. to Yeah, to. It, it follows on from this. Vinicius is very exciting and is clearly doing things that other players aren't doing. Benzema, I just think, is a superior footballer. And the other one who was brilliant again last night is Modric. And I think Real Madrid have enormous problems at squad level. And I think defensively, they're really quite bad. But in a season in which even Atletico, who we think have the best squad, Barcelona, who've clearly been debilitated, Sevilla, who we don't know quite what their level is, Villarreal, who we don't quite know what the level is, and Real Sociedad, who we don't quite know what the level is, in terms of being league contenders. And I think... Two of those three definitely won't. I think Sevilla might not be, but could be, could be. I think Real Madrid have really gigantic problems at squad level. But I think they're starting 11, if only because of the existence of Benzema, Modric and maybe Cruz, plus in goal Courtois, just in terms of the basic level of their starting 11. I'm not sure anyone else has that. Okay. All right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that argument. Although, but what happens if they get injured? I think if Benzema gets injured, they're screwed. I really do. Well, yeah, massively, massively. Yeah. Um, and, and talking of squad depth, I think Atletico Madrid by far away Definitely. the strongest uh, squad. It's not, it's not even really a question. Um, it's just generally accepted. They used that squad to its, well, not its fullest, but they used all, all their squad uh, pretty well at the weekend. Uh, with uh, a triple substitution being made at the break when they were 1-0 down at Espanyol and they played horribly, horribly uh, in the first Mm. half. But uh, a triple substitution with Condogbia, Lamar and Lodi coming on to replace Hermoso, Trippier and Ángel Correa. And it really worked. I mean, we can talk about that in just a moment, what that necessitated. But I guess the headline from this game was the return of Antoine Griezmann, his second debut and... He was largely anonymous. Completely anonymous. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, in fairness to him, this, and, and this feeds into the other part of it, the, you know, the structure and the change of personnel and so on. One of the reasons why I think he was anonymous was because this was a very strange formation in which Griezmann sort of played off the left of the front, quite often ended up almost as the left side of a midfield three, dropping right in. Didn't really have a role that was bringing the best out of him and certainly the team didn't have a structure that brought the best out of the team because in fairness it might be worth noting that Griezmann didn't do much nor did his strike partner Luis Suarez mm-hmm. nor indeed did Ángel Correa um, you know the, the the performance when it became good became good in the second half 
when those two, those three players were either off or about to go off. You know, their their, their end was coming, um, and and he he was very very well. I, I think someone put it. I don't know where I saw it now. He was very grease man. He was very grey. He was, it was a terrible pun, isn't it? Um, he was. He just yeah. He wasn't very good. But as I say, the whole structural thing wasn't very good, and that is what leads me into. And this follows on from what you're saying about Real Madrid and being league champions or being favourites to be league champions. Yesterday told me that Atletico are favourites, but also told me that they're not, if you sort of mean. And I was so unconvinced by them in the first half with theoretically their best team. And at a time in which I just wonder if signing Griezmann inserts an element of doubt structurally that's not very helpful, even if it inserts a very, very good footballer. But then the second half and the ability to respond... And the strength in depth made me think, oh no, they are champions. Because even if they screw it up, sometimes they'll always have an alternative. And not just that, but an alternative in terms of changing not just personnel, but changing structure. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very flat from Griezmann. It was very flat from Griezmann and Atletico Madrid as a whole. They did improve considerably in the second half with the introduction of, we said, of Kondogbi Lemar and Renan Lodi and a bit of a structural change as well, and it proved that Lemar was the match winner. Yannick Carrasco scored an incredible goal with 11 minutes to go, and then Lemar scoring in the 99th minute. Those 10 minutes have added time. Uh, it's been pretty controversial in so much as people have been saying, where on earth did those 10 minutes have come from? We've never seen 10 minutes generally given in La Liga in terms of added time. Well, it was broken down and explained where they came from. There were a couple of injuries. There was a five and a half minute VAR stoppage. There was a two minute uh, hydration break. So in theory, that's where the 10 minutes came from. Uh, Espanyol themselves not convinced though. No, not convinced. I mean, they they put out a tweet, which I suppose in a way is right, um, but but obviously was... was Tongue in was, cheek. Was, yeah, it was, it was a complaint without being a complaint, if you sort of mean. They said, oh, we're absolutely convinced that this will be the case in every game now this season, you know, whenever it's applicable. Now, that is the key for me. When you say to me, um, there were 10 minutes added to the Espanyol Atletico Madrid game on Sunday, my initial response, which of course I will then proceed to unpack, so don't get angry with me, Espanyol fans, when, when we first say this. My initial response is, good Good. It's about time this happened. Now, let me explain. I've said loads of times that we have a problem in Spain with how little time is played and how little time is added on compared to how much time is is taken away from the game. I've said lots of times we are being literally robbed of football every single weekend. And so if more than 10 minutes is wasted, then more than 10 minutes has to be played. That is, Mm. I think, just a fact. Now, the problem, of course, is are we going to see this consistently? Well, obviously, this may now set a precedent. So this might actually be a really, really good thing. Can I understand why Espanyol fans are furious? Yeah, of course, because when the ball goes up and it says 10 on it, of course you're furious. Of course it seems ridiculously over the top. But as you say, it was broken down. Now, normally, I would do the maths, as everybody knows. Not the maths necessarily, because that's not a good idea. But I do the timings, because everybody knows I quite like to watch it back and tell you the times exactly, second by second. Luckily, last night, Spanish TV did it for us. Are you ready mm. for this? Yes. Water break, two minutes. Lamar Gold checking whether or not it was valid and it was eventually ruled out. Five minutes, 36. Felipe down for treatment. One minute, nine. Uh, the Carrasco goal being checked by VAR. One minute, seven. Darder down. One minute, 49. Uh, Mela, uh, Melamed down. One minute, 11. Total, 12 minutes, 52. 10 minutes was actually too little. Hmm. Not too much. Now, obviously, this is a problem. 
Uh, it's a good thing on one level because it's re- giving us back the time that was taken away. And by the way, I think it's worth noting here, Simeone said after the game, well, no, I'd never seen 10 minutes, but I'd never seen so much time lost. That was seen as a dig at Espanyol. It's not a dig at Espanyol. Look at that time. Only two of those are Espanyol players down. So even mm. if you think those players are faking it and we're not, no one's actually said that, it's still not what accounts for all of this. Now, this is a good thing, but I think it also underlines a very bad thing. You can't have games that go into 10 minutes for, unless there's a really exceptional reason. And to be honest with you, a VAR check shouldn't ever be an exceptional reason, right? If you are taking five minutes and 36 seconds to decide whether a goal is valid or not, then it is no longer clear and obvious. It hmm. is too long. And so for me, this is good because A, it gives time back. B, it might set a precedent, which is that generally speaking, time that's taken away gets given back and see I think it's good because I hope it underlines to people how much VAR is screwing with the game not because of the decisions made I don't have a problem with it not because of the existence of the technology I don't actually have a problem with that I actually want VAR to be in football so long as it can be done in a way that's agile and doesn't get in a way but any decision that takes five and a half minutes to be made it's, it's too much Yes, I think you've made a pretty good, pretty good argument there, Sydney. By the way, listener, dear listener, if you're enjoying this podcast, why not consider becoming a patron, a patron of the Spanish Football Podcast at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. We've got a, a new series of TSFP Presents out, which is called uh, Messy Moments. The first episode is out. We discussed his second goal against Real Madrid in the 2011 Champions League uh, semi-finals. There's a free clip here on the Monday podcast feed. We'll also have a Q&A pod out tomorrow and a bonus pod talking Champions League on Thursday. That's all at patreon.com forward slash TSFP plus. Uh, producer Al goes through the Spanish sports papers every single morning for you. There's loads of content there if you're even vaguely interested in Spanish football it might be worth uh, your time and a, a little bit of your money because we provide lots of content there. Back to the football from match day four and we're going to talk about Valencia and their 4-1 thrashing of Osasuna. I say thrashing, Osasuna actually took the lead and played pretty well uh, in this game. It was great by the way to see El Sadar oh, back. It looks amazing. Loads. It, it, I mean it's been, it's been redone, there were lots of people there as we said 60% was it was it sixty percent allowed? It was anyway. It was around about fourteen thousand uh, were yeah. in there. They made a lot of noise. They made it pretty hostile as well in the in the second half. It was great. It was great to see. Yeah. Uh, Valencia though coped with all of that and more. They're looking really really good today. And it's not just that they you know uh, don't necessarily want possession, which they don't, and having more fouls, which they are. They're the team with the most fouls per game. But actually, they're playing well. Yeah, they are. And they're playing well with a very, very clear idea. Now, I think one of the reasons why that idea is clear so quickly, because, of course, all managers come in with a new new approach and sometimes it takes a while to bed it in. And there will definitely, without doubt, be elements of what Bordelas wants to do that his team haven't grasped yet that will come with time. But I think one of the reasons why, the, the if you like, the broad brushstrokes of that identity, the fundamentals of that identity have been seen so quickly is actually because it's quite simple. And I don't mean that to sound derogative, uh, derogatory, rather. It's absolutely not. It's, there's a clarity about Bordelas' message which has reached the players really quick, which they've embraced very, very quickly, and I, which I think suits the style of quite a lot of them. Maybe not all of them, and some of them are going to have to adapt and are going to have to do things that are not necessarily natural to them. But, but it really does work. And for Geddes in particular, a team that plays on the break, a team that gives him space to run into, that mm. effectively, and effectively, how do I put this politely? A manager that forces Geddes, that won't take any that won't take any kind of 
cruising from him, that won't take any messing around, that makes Geddes aggressive again, if nothing else, because he's because he knows that he just won't play if he's not. Because I think, in truth, Geddes has spent too much of the last two years not really imposing himself. And I think he sort of needed someone to, to, to oblige him to. to. Bully's not quite, quite the right word, but you know what I mean? To kind of push him into it, to be aggressive with him, and to kind of have that aggressiveness then get translated onto the pitch. And, and, and I think it's really, really important for him. I also think because of the way that they play... He's going to get more freedom, as I say, because of the, the space to run into. Geddes is not a great player in tight space, but allow him to run, and he's, and he's, and he's great. Really, really good. Uh, Carlos Soler didn't score, unfortunately, for him. Had he done so, he would have become the first Valencia player in their history to score in each of the opening four games of the La Liga season. He did provide a lovely assist, though, for, for Maxi Gomez for the uh, first goal. And Maxi, coming back from Uruguay, much like Fede Valverde, coming back from Uruguay and going straight into the team and being very important as well. He's another player that we can see doing well uh, under mm. José Bordalas. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they're they're the perfect partnership in some ways, aren't they? You know, yeah. They 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 very much. Uh, I was going to say play football in the same way. One plays, one manages, but they they conceive of football in, in largely the same way. I think. Um, on to Athletic uh, against Mallorca. By the way, if there's something that we haven't mentioned, you've got a burning question, you want us to talk about something, become a patron and send us a question and we'll answer it uh, on the Q&A pod. Uh, Athletic 2, Mallorca nil. Let's talk about Iñaki Williams, who started the season well. Uh, he scored uh, against Celta on match day three. He was the match winner there. He scored again against Mallorca. We know goals, finishing, not necessarily his strong point. But if he can improve on the finishing and be, can become a regular scorer, he's going to be one of La Liga's most dangerous players. Of course he is, yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, we know that scoring is, is theoretically not what he does best. In fact, I think it's 69 my, goals in those 300 games. So Yeah, which isn't bad, but it's not great as a centre-forward. It's not great. Um, and Marcelino even said this, didn't he? It was, I think, in the week before the Barcelona game. Yeah. Um, he was asked about Inyaki Williams and he said, look, we're not going to turn him into a striker. He's not going to get 20 goals a season. That's just not what Inyaki does. But he's very valuable to us. And I think what he was trying to do was effectively say, take that pressure off him. You know, don't, don't, don't demand these goals from him. But those goals are sort of starting to happen. And that night against Barcelona, for example, that aggressiveness, that directness, that running at people, particularly Eric Garcia, really suffered with him. Uh, is that, that's a Spanishism, isn't it? Really struggled with him. You know, couldn't, mm-hmm. really couldn't deal with him at all. And so I think Inyaki is going to be very important with that. I think a big question here will be the strike partner because, of course, for most of this season, it's been Sunset, which is a shift away from Raul Garcia. Sunset wasn't available this weekend, so Raul Garcia played and then, of course, produces that brilliant header. And so you've got, I think you've got players who can play with him. I think it's interesting to see that Marcelino is playing... Sorry, what brilliant header? He does that brilliant leap at the far post for... Does it come back off the post? I'm trying to think now. Oh, right. Yes, 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 yes. I've, I've, I've now lost track of the game. It comes back off the post, doesn't it? Or does it actually go in? It doesn't go in, no. No, it doesn't go in. It's Vivian, it's, Vivian, it's Vivian who scores. Yeah. There's, there's one where it's across the far post and it's a brilliant leap from Raul Garcia. Yes. And I'm trying to picture it. Does it hit the post or does the goalie save it? Anyway, I can't remember where, where, what it is now. Um, I could just see him jumping. Yes. I could just see the cross and yes. him jumping. You know which one I mean. Anyway, uh, our listeners now are probably just thinking, just get on with it, which we we're going to do. Please um, do. So I think, I think there's a question mark over the partner. I think it's interesting that Marcelino 
has avoided the potential um, uh, the temptation to play Ika Munayin off the front. And mm. I think that's because he wants goals in that forward position and wants Munayin to have a bit of freedoms coming off the left. So he plays in a kind of an asymmetric midfield. So the right-sided midfielder will normally run in straight lines and the left-sided midfielder will run in diagonal ones coming in. Um, but I, I, think, I do think Athletic probably have a problem up front, even with Inyaki playing well, uh, because they don't naturally have a goal scorer. Let's see what happens with Nico Williams if he continues to get more minutes this season. And let's see what happens with Nico Serrano, who came on and played, what was it, 12, 13 minutes that weekend. And he is a player that, that people in Bilbao have been very excited about for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, he looked, he looked, he looked fantastic, Nico Serrano, and uh, looking forward to, uh, to seeing him play a little bit more. Uh, that's it for uh, this week's edition of the pod. Before we go, uh, Champions League is back and Spanish sides are in action on Tuesday night. It's Sevilla against Salzburg, Barca against Bayern, wow, uh, Villarreal against Atalanta, and on Wednesday, Atletico Porto and Inter against uh, Real Madrid. Uh, in the Segunda, Sporting are still top. Sorry, Sid. Sorry, Estela. Uh, they beat Leganes, who are who are bottom on Friday. Uh, Oviedo are in the playoff spots, though. Yeah, and I, I mean, honestly, I don't care that Sporting are top. That's absolutely fine. If Oviedo are going to be in a playoff place, I'm delighted with that. Cool. Okay. In fact, you know what? In an ideal world, we'd both go up. It'd be absolutely lovely to have an Asturias derby in Primera. Agreed. Um, I've already mentioned about becoming a patron, so I won't bore you again. But if you'd like to, patreon.com forward slash TSFP. If not, me and Sid will be here with producer Alan, probably Estella barking in the background next (laughs) Monday as well. So don't worry. We'll see you then. Adios. Cheerio. Network.